Hello and welcome to the East Baltimore Graffiti Church's podcast. We are so excited to have you join us today. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at ebgraffitichurch at gmail.com. Or you can check us out on our website at ebgraffitichurch.org. Just jump right in. This morning we're going to talk about the journey to Jerusalem. We're going to talk about Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. Uh, being God himself, the Messiah, the Savior. Um, thank you. Jesus, of course, knew the journey that he was taking. He knew how it was going to end. But I thought to myself, and sometimes that's dangerous, right? I thought to myself this week several times, had I known, had I known how my journey was going to go, right? What was my journey was going to be like when I was 17 or 18? Uh, could I see into the future and know what my journey was going to be like when I was 25 or 30 or 40 or, oh, I'll stop before you know how old I am. But, and I thought, no, no, I'm glad that I did not know. I did not want to know the hardships. I, I would not have wanted to know the heartaches in advance. Uh, and sometimes I like surprises too, right? Sometimes there's beautiful things in the journey, right? And I don't want the surprise to be spoiled. I want to enjoy it fully. But I think, when I think about Jesus' journey, so the Gospel of Luke celebrates, you know, there are themes, right? If you were going to write a book of the Bible, it would be diff- it would be written differently than the book of the Bible that I would write. If you and I were Jesus' disciples and we were walking with him and the Holy Spirit... The Holy Spirit called on each one of us to write an account of of our travels with Jesus. We would write about different things because no one gospel writer recorded all of the same things. Although, you know, the synoptic gospels write that Matthew, Mark and Luke do have some similarities and even have some differences. And that's because even as the Holy Spirit moved on them to write their gospel accounts, Holy Spirit did not interfere in their personalities. And so each gospel writer um, emphasized different things as the Holy Spirit moved them. So all that to say this morning that Luke talks a lot about Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, the Jesus' journey to the cross. He starts all the way back in Luke chapter 9. Um, building anticipation, right? So the Gospels are narrative literature. It would be like watching a TV show or a movie or going to a play. It's a narrative. And each of these Gospel writers is writing this narrative of their time with Jesus. And so there are some themes in each of the Gospels. And one of the exciting things is to read one of the Gospels, you know, we, we cheat and look at the answers. And I say, okay, and I write down what the themes are, and then, then I read the gospel and I see these themes. So, so Luke emphasizes Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. He emphasizes joy in his gospel. He emphasizes, and this one I had never heard of, but this judgment reversal that I learned about from someone else. I'm not that smart. Um, but then once I read it and looked for it, we're going to, we're going to jump in there this morning. Um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with, with Corey Ten Boom, but, um, but during uh, World War II, her family, her family hid, um, hid Jewish people in their home from the Germans and saved their lives. Most of her family 
lost their lives and were executed by the Nazis for saving Jews during World War II. And Corrie ten Boom, if I'm not mistaken, was the only survivor of her family. Um, and, and she wrote a famous book called The Hiding Place. Um, I didn't write down the year of her death, but I think she lived into the 80s, like 1982. And, and, and so she survived the Holocaust. But but and and this is challenging. These are I don't have fluffy stories for you today. Corrie Ten Boom was once asked if it were difficult for her to remain humble, right? A person of some notoriety and fame. Her reply was simple. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on the back of a donkey, and everyone was waving palm branches and throwing garments on the road and singing praises. Do you think that for one moment it ever entered the head of that donkey that any of that was for him? She continued, if I can be the donkey on which Jesus Christ rides in his glory, I give him all the praise and all the honor. Wow. I've never, I've read The Hiding Place even in public school, you learn about Cory ten Boom, but I never read that true quote, right? So I'm going to behave myself and just let that sit there for a moment. Although, uh, you know, some people refer to Palm Sunday as a Trojan horse of the church year. Palm Sunday is a Trojan horse of each church year. You remember the story from Greek mythology, right? The huge, splendid wooden horse was accepted by the Trojans as a present from the Greeks. So it really ought to be called the Greek horse, but never mind. The horse was wheeled in, you remember, through the walls of the city of Troy. In the night, Greek soldiers, hidden in the horse, slipped out and admitted the Greek army who proceeded to sack the city, right? Palm Sunday is a little bit like that, friends. My grandchildren say it's their favorite Sunday of the year, but when pressed to say why, they say they like the palms, and especially the palm crosses that their father makes for them. It's really a setup. What we do is we lure you in here with palm waving and festivity, but we have smuggled in the passion narrative and you have found yourselves shouting, crucify him. On this day, the ancient liturgy of the church brings us to Jerusalem to participate in an atrocity. Thus, the proper name for this day is not Palm Sunday, but Passion Sunday. Today in Jerusalem, a crime is committed. And guess what? We are the perpetrators. Say, Pastor, I didn't come to church this morning for that. Friends, we are the sinners for whom Christ traveled to Jerusalem to die. If only one person in this room or if only one person in Baltimore City had ever committed a sin, Jesus still would have come, he still would have traveled to Jerusalem, and he still would have died on the cross and shed his blood for that sinner who sinned. And yet each and every one of us are here this morning and we are and we can praise God for it and we will that we are the reason Jesus took that journey 
to Jerusalem. I shudder to think if he had not. Amen? Amen. So we're just going to talk about four things briefly here this morning. Never believe a pastor when he uses the word briefly. But one, we're going to see that Jerusalem is the destination of Jesus' journey. And you say, duh, we already know that. But there are some things there, trust me. Then we're going to see the joy in the journey and who had this joy in the journey. Then we're going to see upside down judgment uh, during this journey. And then we're going to talk a little bit about Jesus' identity, okay? So just a few minutes here in the Word of God. First, Jerusalem is a destination of Jesus' journey. I think on the next slide here, we're going to see a couple of verses. Luke goes, Luke starts this in chapter 9. He is looking towards the cross, towards Jerusalem, the great holy city of the Jews, the place where Old Testament Jews made the trip every year for Passover. It is where the temple is located. It is where the Pharisees and the Sadducees reside, the religious leaders of the Jewish nation of Israel. It's the most important city in the entire history of the Jews. That's not the Holy Spirit. That's my dogs running back and forth on the roof. Um, it might, might, go ahead, it's the Holy Spirit. And so this great and holy city of the Jews. Jesus is marching on Luke 9.31. Luke starts to give us these clues, right? The transfiguration, Jesus is giving three of his disciples a glimpse of what it is like to be God. But it says in verse 31 of chapter 9, who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So even at the transfiguration, um, when Jesus took Peter and John and James up to the mountain to pray, this was all Luke is saying. This was in anticipation of Jesus going to Jerusalem in light of the cross, under the shadow of the cross. Verse 51 of the same chapter, when the days were approaching for his ascension, so you see Luke is looking to the cross early on in his gospel, when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. Now I will say this, it is not in my notes. Um, it, it is not in my notes, but Jesus was focused on the mission at hand. Jesus was a missionary. Jesus was on a mission, and his mission was to save sinners. Jesus' mission was to reunite people with the God from whom we are separated because of our sinfulness. All the way back to Adam and Eve when they sinned in the garden, and you and I and everyone born throughout the course of history is born a sinner separated from God. We are born in need of a Savior. We cannot earn it. We cannot work our way towards it. The Bible teaches us that. Jalen preached it two weeks ago very plainly in Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace are we saved through faith, not by works. We cannot earn it. So Jesus is making that journey on your behalf and on mine. He's on his way to Jerusalem. So, mentioned several times throughout the Gospel in Luke, but in the next slide, we're going to see that um, hundreds, even thousands of years before Jesus came, and certainly remembering, and we talk about this often, that God operates outside of space and time. 
God created space and time for you and me. God operates outside of space and time. So for, from eternity past, God knew that even when he created us, he knew we were going to sin. He knew we were going to be separated from him. He knew we were going to need a savior. From eternity past, Jesus knew what his mission was going to be. I know, right? I always go, because I, I, can't, I can't wrap my brain around living outside of time and space. So why is that so important? If we go back and on the next slide, it'll take up two verses, but I will read from Zechariah 9. Zechariah is a prophet who lived hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was born. Listen to what the scripture says here. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion, speaking to the Jews. Shout in triumph, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And I will eliminate from the chair, I will eliminate the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be eliminated, and he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. In Zechariah chapter 9, hundreds of years before Christ was born, Zechariah prophesied, Jerusalem, Jews, Israel, nation of Israel, your Savior is going to come. He's not going to be riding on a mighty horse like a warrior. He's going to ride in on a donkey that has never been ridden before, and he's coming in as a humble servant. They get this, but then when the time comes, they don't get it. The Jews wanted a Savior who would release them from the bondage of Rome under the heavy taxation and pseudo-slavery that the Jews were in under Rome. When Jesus, when Jesus came into Jerusalem, and we're going to talk about this, several things happened just prior to that, and all these crowds were following him because he was healing the sick and, and saving sinners, and the people were excited about it but they wanted a warrior king. And you see in Zechariah chapter 9, we get the clue when Zechariah pulls the curtain back for us. There won't be a chariot. There won't be a war horse. There won't be weapons. But Jesus, your Savior, they don't call him Jesus here, your Savior, he will speak peace. We learn in Ephesians chapter 2 and 3, and we're talking about this, right? That Jesus is our peace. That Jesus brings peace. The peace that Jesus brings, though, is to sinners who are at war with God prior to knowing him. Say, what? I'm not at war with God. Romans chapter 5 says that you and I are God's enemies prior to, prior to becoming his children. We don't like, I, don't, I didn't like that when I read that. I said, oh my, Paul, you wrote some stuff there, didn't you? Paul said that we are God's enemies in Romans 5. I believe it's verse 10. So what Jesus does is he brings peace. He makes peace between the sinner and the God who loves them. And he did it when he came to Jerusalem, marched up to the Mount of Olives, came down the other side, went into the city, knowing what was waiting for him. So Jerusalem, the destination of Jesus' journey. But we're going to see in verses 36 through 38, there's also great joy in the journey. You know what, sometimes, some, and I talk to folks all week this week who are really wrestling with loss and grief and even deep depression. And, and it's hard sometimes. It's just hard to have 
joy in the journey. As Christians, we are ashamed sometimes, right? We think, I know Jesus, I should be happy. No, that's not always the case. I, I, I learned this, Diane and I learned this, and, and I'm allowed to say that because she and I have an agreement about that, that we, can, that we talk about this. Um, in, in, in the greatest grief of our lives, um, a dear friend from the Word of God taught us how to have those, if you want to have the good memories and have the joyful times and remembering like someone you lost, we also have to learn how to endure the grieving hard part of losing that person. Because you don't get one without the other. See, sometimes we like to put it in a box and tie it up and put it up on a shelf because we don't want to feel the hurt and the loss and the pain. But Jesus teaches us, Jesus teaches us in his own life here on earth and in who he is as our Savior, that we can have joy in the journey, even though, and this is, this is upside down, it's an oxymoron, I get it. You and I can be, you can have grief in your life. You can even have depression. Um, um, we wrestle with all kinds of things in our lives. But at the same time, if you're in right relationship with God through Jesus, you can have joy at the same time. You can have some peace in your life at the same time. Say, Charlie, how does that work? I don't know how it works. Because some days, some days when I'm sad, I cry when I miss my sister or my brother or my son. Some of, um, especially my son, when, when you lose someone that close, you, you, some of you, many of you know those losses. So, so how do you deal with that deep grief? You know, I remember the good times, at the, but, you, but we have to be ready to accept them both. Why am I doing this today? I feel led to do this today because I talked to people all week who, who were really wrestling with grief and loss. And we see in verses 36 through 38, Jesus is coming into the city. Um, everyone is excited. And they say, as he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. They, didn't, they wanted the coat. They didn't want Jesus to get dirty or the colt to kick up dust. This was an honor. This, they, they were showing honor to Jesus coming in. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory to God in the highest. The people were praising God because of Jesus. You know, sometimes, sometimes, guys, this is hard. Sometimes we need to look to Jesus in our darkest moments because he taught us how to get through them. He gave up his life and suffered on the cross and bled and died so that you and I could get through them. This is how I can have peace and joy at the same time that I'm enduring loss and grief. I can't live in denial of loss and grief because that will do bad things to me. Um, when I was in active addiction many years ago, I was living in denial of loss and grief in my life and, and those things that caused me pain because I couldn't face them. But, but when the Holy Spirit moved in my life and God put good people in my life and I got clean, what happened was this whole time, it's a long journey, friends. It's a long journey that I was, I learned how to have both. I learned how to endure loss and grief, but allow the peace of God to reside in me and to trust and look to Him 
even on the dark days. That's what God does. You and I can, I'm way off script. You and I can have joy in the journey. And here's how. In the next slide, we see it. In Luke chapter 18, and this is a cool thing. So we're replaying the video. We're going to an earlier episode. You know how on Netflix it says more, y'all know I've been watching too much TV. And you say, and you go back to another episode because you forgot something and you want to watch it again. So in Luke chapter 18 and verses 35 through 43, Jesus heals um, Bartimaeus and he receives his sight, right? Um, and Jesus was approaching Jericho. So Jesus is on his journey, right? He's on his way to Jerusalem. And he said, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus said um, in verse 41, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said, receive your sight. Your faith has made you whole. But then listen, immediately he regained his sight and began, one, following Jesus, and two, glorifying God. And when all the people saw it, they praised God. So the blind man gets healed. What does he do? Glorifying and praising God. When we see this in our journey, when we see God at work, um, we should be glorifying and praising God. Glorifying and praising God in the midst of our journey. This guy was blind probably his whole life. He was a beggar. He's also not somebody that a king would stop and talk to, right? We're going to talk about that in a minute. See, I like that part too. But in chapter 19, verses 6 and 7, you know Zacchaeus, right? Because he was a wee little man. You know I always want to sing the Sunday school song, but I will restrain myself again this morning. I love that song. Okay, so, but what happened? Jesus said in front of everybody, in front of the whole crowd, the Pharisees and, and everybody, Jesus said, Zacchaeus, come down out of there. We're going to your house today. And listen, and he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Your Bible might say gladly in verse 6 there. Zacchaeus was so excited that Jesus was coming to his house. He was rejoicing. Jesus on the journey, interacting with you and me on our journey. We can have joy in the journey. And you know, Zacchaeus said, Zacchaeus said, everybody I ripped off, Lord, I'm going to pay them back sevenfold. Jesus says, salvation has come to your house today. But the Pharisees got mad. He's going to hang out and eat at the sinner's house. We're going to talk about that in a minute too. And then we see the third C. We see the disciples in the crowd. And I already read the scripture, but the crowd was so excited, joyfully praising God praising God and glorifying Jesus as he came into the city of Jerusalem. So we see that we can have joy. Jesus teaches us how to have joy in the journey. Thirdly, we're going to see upside down judgment here as well. So thirdly, we're going to see judgment. And, and why is that important? Because sin has to be dealt with. And Jesus in his journey dealt with sin. Jesus in his great love for you and me deals with our sin. So we talked about blind, blind Bartimaeus. I will not um, re-read these verses. But how is it that in the next slide we see these three people again leading up Jesus on his journey to Jerusalem? We see a blind man begging. Would a king stop and talk to a blind man on the side of the road begging? Not normally, right? Um, and so Jesus was approaching Jericho and he saw him. 
hearing a crowd going by. He said, who is it? He said, Jesus of Nazareth. He called out to him, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Why would a king stop and talk to a blind guy? We see that um, Jesus didn't stop and have lunch with the religious leaders. He stopped on the side of the road and engaged a blind man because Jesus knew that this man was going to come to faith in him. When he knew, when he heard that it was Jesus, he knew that Jesus was going to heal him. The blind man had a tough journey. His life was probably horrible. But we see this reverse judgment here, right? It gets even better. We see the tax collector. Um, we see the tax collector Zacchaeus again in Luke chapter 19, right? Listen to what the Pharisees said. Um, I'll get to the correct verse. Um, sure I will. When they saw it in verse 7, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. We see upside-down judgment. Look, a tax collector was an enemy of the Jews. A tax collector played both sides of the street. tax collector was shady. He was hanging out with the Romans and defrauding his own people. Tax collectors were not popular people, but he was wealthy. So he was able to maneuver, right? Take advantage of his situation. Take advantage of other people. And so he was not a popular guy. Jesus doesn't go have lunch with the Pharisees again. Jesus is calling sinners to salvation. You see, Pharisees, and I'll dare say church folk, sometimes church folk can have a sense of entitlement. Church folk can have a sense of being right with God and because of what we do and do not do. Jesus is calling sinners to salvation, not giving church folk a pat on the back. Oh my. These were the Jewish religious leaders. Jesus was Jewish. Jesus was teaching in their temples. He's going to do that after he rides into Jerusalem on this donkey. Or I dare say donkey. He rides into Jerusalem on this donkey and he's going to teach in their synagogues. But they're all, they've been talking bad about him and trying to figure out a way to kill him the whole time. Jesus, upside down judgment, judgment reversal. Jesus came to save sinners like you and me. And don't misunderstand me, and Pharisees and religious folk and church folk too, amen? And then we see the parable of the money and the servants that we didn't talk about here just prior to Jesus' triumphal entry. Um, he tells a parable of the money usage, right? And he gives out this money and he's going away to, he, takes his par he tells his parable story, right? I don't want to rush through it, but he's going to, the, the man has inherited a kingdom and he goes away to get, to get all his stuff. And he puts guys in charge of some of his money and he tells them, take good care of it. And you hear the one guy invest the money and when the, when the leader, when, when the man, rich man comes back, he says, you invested well, you made this much money, I'm going to put you in charge of 10 cities. And the other guy, he says, you made this much money and I'm going to put you in charge of five cities. The last guy said, I didn't do nothing with the money because, because you take and give and do whatever you want and I was afraid of you so I didn't want to lose your money. And Jesus said, yeah, and you know what? And whatever you do have is going to be taken from you. Get out of my sight. He tells him, get out of my sight. 
He said, I tell you that everyone who has more shall be given, but from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away from him. But these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. At the end, I know that is strong language at the end of this parable, my friends. He says, but these enemies of mine did not want me to reign over them. Now, parables usually have simple stories, simple meaning, right? Jesus knew Pharisees, Sadducees, religious folk did not want Jesus ruling over them. And watch this, verse 28 of our text this morning, and we're coming in for a landing. After he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. So how do we know? He connects, Luke connects Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem with the events of healing blind Bartimaeus, calling Zacchaeus to salvation, and telling the people the parable of the king going to receive his kingdom. He tells them all these things for a reason, because Jesus knows what's about to happen in Jerusalem. So all along the way, while he's healing people, saving Zacchaeus, telling parables, people are following him, they're getting excited, and they're following him on his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. But now the last thing we're going to talk about this morning, and I love talking about this, is Jesus' identity in verses 38 through 40. 38 through 40, Jesus, blind Bartimaeus, refers to Jesus as a son of David two times in his brief verses here before he is healed. Blind Bartimaeus, when he refers to Jesus as the son of David, he is acknowledging that he believes Jesus is the fulfillment of the covenant promise that God made to David in the Old Testament when God said, one of your descendants will sit on the throne of Israel forever. Guess who that is? That's Jesus Christ, amen? Jesus Jesus is sitting on the throne of his kingdom, sitting on the throne over Israel and over the whole world, and that is the fulfillment of that scripture. So that's how we know that the blind man put his faith in Jesus. Secondly, Zacchaeus knew that he defrauded people and that he was living in sin as a, as a tax collector. And without even being prompted, he said, Jesus, I'm going to give back sevenfold to everyone I have ripped off. Jesus said, salvation has come to your house today. So, oh, but what he says is he too, excuse me, is a son of Abraham, a son of the promise. When Jesus, when Jesus includes Zacchaeus as a son of Abraham, he's saying that the promise God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and again in Genesis chapter 15, that I will give your nation will be like the sand of the sea and the stars of the sky and that all the families of the earth will be blessed in you. All the families of the fulfillment of that is Jesus Christ. All the families of the earth will be blessed in Jesus Christ. So when he calls Zacchaeus, when he says this man is a son of Abraham, he's saying it so the Pharisees can hear it because they thought that they were true sons of Abraham, but a sinner like Zacchaeus could not be. So Jesus saves a sinner and says, he too is a son of the promise, amen? So you see, regardless of where you and I have been, you, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian, if you are one who has given your life to Christ, you 
You too are a true son or daughter of Abraham. You too understand that Jesus truly is the Son of Man and the Son of David. And again, um, in these passages, we see Son of David, Son of Abraham. Matter of fact, I left one out, Son of Man. And then here in the passage that we read today, verse 38, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is our King. Jesus is King of the world. Jesus is both our King, our reigning King, and our Savior. He is Messiah. He is the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament said that the Savior would be. He's marching into Jerusalem, knowing what awaits him. He's focused on the journey. We see that you can have joy in the journey even when it is difficult. We see that Jesus judges people differently than man judges people. And shouldn't we each one be grateful for that? And we see that in Jesus' identity, we see that he is Messiah, your Savior and our King. Amen? So say, so what, Pastor? It's Palm Sunday. You know what, friends? Sometimes your journey too might be difficult. Are you journeying with Jesus? Are you journeying with Jesus as we approach this Easter? What is it that you might need to surrender even as a follower of Jesus so that you can have some joy in your journey? So, so that... Uh, like Zacchaeus, we can confess. Sometimes even as Christians, we have willful sin hidden in our back pocket, but it's really not hidden. Maybe like Zacchaeus, we just need to confess that sin. And Jesus says, oh, welcome back. I'll be careful how I use that though. Listen, friends, there's joy in the journey. Jesus judges differently than people. That means there's hope for you and for me. And so you and I can have peace because of Jesus, joy because of Jesus, even if today your journey is difficult. So trust Him. Father God,